So that brings us down to the message for this morning. And I'm going to call Damien forward to uh, read the, uh, the pertinent um, passage of scripture for us. Gospel of Mark chapter 5 verses 21 to 43. And for those that are willing and able, please, um, uh, please be upstanding while we read the word of God together. Mark chapter 5 verses 21 to 43. Now when Jesus had crossed over again by the boat to the other side, a great multitude gathered to him, and he was by the sea. And behold, one of the rulers of the synagogue came, Jairus by name. And when he saw him, he fell at his feet and begged him earnestly, saying, My little daughter lies at the point of death. Come and lay your hands on her. She may be healed, and she will live. So Jesus went with him, and a great multitude followed him and thronged him. Now a certain woman had a flow of blood for twelve years and had suffered many things from many physicians. She had spent all that she had and was no better, but rather grew worse. When she heard about Jesus, she came behind him in the crowd and touched his garment. For she said, if I only may touch his clothes, I shall be made well. Immediately, the fountain of her blood was dried up and she felt in her body that she was healed of this affliction. And Jesus, immediately knowing in himself that power had gone out of him, turned around in the crowd and said, Who touches my clothes? Or who touched my clothes? But his disciples said to him, You see the multitude thronging you, and you say, Who touched me? He looked around to see her who had done this thing. But the woman, fearing and trembling, came and fell down before him and told him the whole truth. And he said to her, Daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace and be healed of your affliction. While he was speaking, some came from the ruler of the synagogue's house who said, Your daughter is dead. Why trouble the teacher any further? As soon as Jesus heard the word that was spoken, he said to the ruler of the synagogue, Do not be afraid. Only believe. And he permitted no one to follow him except Peter, James, and John, the brother of James. Then he came to the house of the ruler of the synagogue and saw a tumult and those who wept and wailed loudly. When he came in, he said to them, Why make this commotion and weep? The child is not dead, but sleeping. And they ridiculed him. But when he had put them all outside, he took the father and mother of the child and those who were with him and entered where the child was lying. Then he took the child by the hand and said to her, Talitha kumi, which is translated, Little girl, I say to you, arise. Immediately the girl arose and walked, for she was twelve years of age, and they were overcome with great amazement. But he commanded them strictly that no one should know it, and said that something should be given to her to eat. Please be seated. Damien did a good job reading that through his mask, didn't he? Um, a story within a story. We begin, Mark begins by introducing us to uh, Jairus in distress about the condition of his daughter. And then as Jesus responds to that distress, Mark introduces a- another story. This of a, uh, a woman equally in distress had been so for 12 years. Uh, this, this technique, if you will, is a, um, a literary device that Mark employs a number of times throughout his gospel. And it seems to serve to 
give emphasis to the connection, if you will, between the two stories. Uh, a story of two touches, if you will, a story of two women. A mature woman who had suffered terribly from a hemorrhaging illness for the previous 12 years and a 12-year-old girl on the threshold of womanhood whose life is prematurely cut short by sickness. And it seems that through this sandwiching technique, Mark is emphasising this point, the overlap between the experience of the two. A woman stricken with illness for 12 years and then a 12-year-old girl suddenly falls terminally ill. Uh, interesting, when, when, when the mature woman, the older woman, was stricken with illness, at this time, the little girl comes into the world, celebrates her first birthday. The connection between the two, I, I want to suggest, emphasises what I would describe as the harsh reality of life. A woman whose life has been dominated by pain and suffering and isolation. A young girl in the prime of her life, now apparently threatened with that life being terminated, being cut short. And this really is simply, I would say, a a reflection of the reality of our lot in life as human beings. An allegory some have suggested representing Israel because of the number 12, some have assumed in their mind, well, 12 equals the 12 tribes of Israel. Therefore, this is some sort of an analogy. And look, that might be so, that might be so, but I want to suggest to you that it would be less than helpful to get distracted from what Mark's primary point is, that is Jesus' compassion for and response to the needs of these two women. Um, many will make a point that, that uh, in the text Mark goes on to describe Jesus' rejection by his own uh, in, uh, in, in, in Nazareth. He was, he was cast out by the people, rejected by the people. And so the idea would be that, that the women represent Israel in some way and that, and that it culminates with their rejection of the Messiah. Personally, I think it's a bit, it, it's a bit speculative. Um, uh, especially given that uh, as early as chapter 3 in Mark, Mark's already established the point that, that the religious establishment, at least, the scribes and the Pharisees, the Sadducees, etc., had already made up their mind that this troublemaker has to go and were already plotting to, to get rid of Jesus. Um, uh, it seems that Jesus' miracles, in particular things like healing on the Sabbath, was just intolerable for the religious establishment. So let's, let's walk through the story, as it were. Uh, Jesus got into the boat again and went back to the other side of the lake where a large crowd gathered around him on the shore. Jesus had been working in Capernaum, the hometown, it seems, of, uh, of the Apostle Peter. And that was the site, remember, where, where Jesus heals Peter's mother-in-law. But then he moves to the other side of the lake into Gentile territory. And there, among other things, he encounters a demon-possessed man and the mob of demons that had possessed him called itself legion. And Jesus exercises the demons from the man and now he's returned to the other side, to Jewish territory, as it were, in Galilee. And again, Unsurprisingly, a large crowd gathers together around him. Verse 22, Then a leader of the local synagogue, whose name was Jairus, arrived. 
And when he saw Jesus, he fell at his feet, pleading fervently with him. My little daughter is dying, he said. Please come and lay your hands on her and heal her so that she can live. And Jesus went with him and all the people followed, crowding around him. It's interesting Mark's references to the crowd. The crowd assemble whenever Jesus is, is, in, is in the vicinity. And now this dramatic scene, Jairus, a leader of the synagogue, comes pleading, begging Jesus to come with him in the hopes that he could save the life of his little girl, his precious little girl. And you get the sense that the crowd follows as Jesus responds and moves towards Jairus' home. The crowd ever looking for a show, eagerly following along. The synagogue ruler, in Jesus' time, synagogues were led by a small group of laymen. These weren't professionals, these were laymen, responsible for the maintenance of the building and of the conducting of services in the synagogue. These officials were chosen locally by the members of each synagogue. So we're probably talking about Capernaum as a location, back in Capernaum again, probably. Uh, and, and Jairus would be acutely aware of the controversy, the religious controversy that had surrounded Jesus and the verdict of the scribes and Pharisees, who were the strongest religious influence through synagogues. He was aware that they determined that this man was anathema. This man is a troublemaker, an enemy of Israel, and he needs to be, at least not up front acknowledging, but behind the scenes saying he needs to be dealt with, he needs to be removed. Jairus would have been aware of all of that. And yet despite that knowledge, he still humbles himself to reach out to Jesus, to beg of Jesus. It's interesting, the term in this context that's translated dying is from the Greek word eschaton, which we normally associate with uh, the teachings about end times, when Jesus returns, the end of the world, the end of time. And it's a way of emphasising the urgency in this matter. And we need to understand this to understand and appreciate the mindset of Jairus, the despair of Jairus. This is a moment-by-moment crisis. Every second counts. Desperation. A father's love for his little girl, his only daughter, Luke tells us in Luke's account, overrides any other consideration, any other concern. What do the Pharisees say? What do the people say? I don't care. The life of my little girl's at stake. All I need is whatever Jesus can offer me. A woman in the crowd, and just pause here for a moment, remembering the desperation of Jairus, how unwelcome for him this interruption is. A woman in the crowd had suffered for 12 years with constant bleeding, she had suffered a great deal from many doctors and over the years she had spent everything she had to pay them but she had gotten no better. In fact, she would gotten worse. Now I guess to begin to understand the plight of this woman, we go back to the law of Moses. Remember she's a Jew 
and she is subject to and we don't doubt would be concerned to honour the law of Moses. And certainly the community that she lived in would be, would be quite strict in applying the law of Moses to her circumstance. So get, read, let's, let's read in Leviticus chapter 15 just to get a hint, just to get a taste of what her experience of life had been for the past 12 years. If a woman has a flow of blood for many days that is unrelated to a menstrual period, or if the blood continues beyond the normal period, she is ceremonially unclean. As during her menstrual period, the woman will be unclean as long as the discharge continues. Any bed she lies on and any object she sits on during the time will be unclean, just as during her normal menstrual period. If any of you touch these things, you will be ceremonially unclean. You must wash your clothes and bathe yourself in water and you will remain unclean until evening. I don't doubt in its original context in the law of Moses, we have a clear reflection of what we would today take for granted. Quarantine. In fact, in our experience today, we know better than ever the reality. And I want to hasten to add the value the practical value of quarantine, when somebody is ill to separate them from the group, lest their illness transmit to others and so it it spreads. But here in the life of this woman, think about the consequences of 12 years of uncleanness. Unlike the popular Jairus. Now, Jairus isn't royalty. Jairus isn't like a, uh, to be like, treated like a, uh, the governor or, or such things. But he was important in his community, the community that he served as a leader in the synagogue. In contrast to Jairus, this nobody woman, this invisible woman, an outcast living under extremely isolating conditions. Spiritually, she was excluded from the temple and synagogue. She would not be permitted to go as close in those days as a woman could go into the temple complex because of her ritual uncleanness. And she couldn't mix as we can enjoy today, I guess in, the, in the, the, the Christian era equivalent to the synagogue assembly, the assembling coming together of the people of God, she couldn't enjoy that. Wearing a mask would not cut it. <laughs> the closest perhaps we might imagine is she might be standing outside the building at an open window, hoping to catch something of what was happening inside Probably, I would say almost certainly, she was stigmatised by many as a sinner under God's curse. The thinking in that day was very often, if you're sick, it's because God is unhappy with you. God is punishing you. Can you imagine for 12 years living with that stigma? Socially. She was to be treated like a leper. Did you notice in the description there in verse um, 26, any bed she lies on and any object she sits on during that time will be unclean. If you tried to be gracious towards this woman, invite her to spend time together. 
You would have to thoroughly cleanse anything that she touched. Few people, I would suggest, would have bothered with that. And the woman would probably be so embarrassed anyway, she would probably decline any well-meaning invitations. Almost total social isolation, psychologically and emotionally running on empty. Mark's text that that suggests that maybe she was the victim of charlatans. She, in her desperation, willing to pay money to anybody who would promise to fix her. Whatever's gone on for her, the disappointment, she's destitute as a result of this sickness. Desperation, no less desperate than Jairus, the father. Hope in the face of hopelessness. She heard about Jesus, so she came up behind him through the crowd and touched his robe. But she thought to herself, if I can just touch his robe, I will be healed. And immediately the bleeding stopped and she could feel in her body that she'd been healed of a terrible condition. Out of despair comes the courage to reach out. Think about the courage of this woman. She knew full well after 12 years of uncleanness and exile, isolation, rejection, she had no business being in that crowd. And she knew that anybody that would see her would look at her with scorn and condemnation. Can you imagine what courage it took? What desperation it took to drive her, to endure all that, to push through all of that in the desperate hope that she could just touch Jesus' garment. It seems reasonable to think that maybe she was a little bit superstitious in her understanding. This was a common woman, not a scholar that knew all the right things, but a woman who had assumed that if by reaching out and just touching his garment, by magic somehow, that his power will be transferred to me and I'll be healed. The power, of course, is not in any magical robes or even the correct touching technique. And note, again, that that her being in the crowd in the first place was technically unlawful because of her uncleanness. The power, what was really happening here, the efficient cause, if you will, lay in God, in the person of the Son of God. The woman's trust in Jesus, her faith, was what you might describe as the instrumental cause. As she reaches out in faith, God responds. God responds. Suffering forces us out of our complacency and self-reliance to trust in God. 
This is such an important thing for us to understand. Today of all days, in this age today, when we sit here aware of a pandemic worldwide, and some of us have been touched very directly, very personally, in losing family members as a result. Others of us are concerned about events in places like Afghanistan. Unimaginable suffering. How on earth can things happen like that? What's the matter with people? What's the matter with this world? Why is it that a humble Jewish woman would suffer for 12 years? Not just from the illness itself, but from all of the ramifications that followed. How is it that a 12-year-old girl could fall so ill that her life is on the line? What's the matter with this world? Well, at the risk of sounding simplistic, in a very little word, sin, but our concern is more with Mark's concern, which is the solution to that problem, the means by which we can understand and make sense of our world, the means by which we can have not just purpose here and now, but hope for the future, hope even among apparent hopelessness. Suffering forces us out of our complacency and self-reliance to trust in God. The greatest tragedy of the suffering in its many forms in the world today is not that people are subject to misery and hardship, As tragic as that is, the greatest tragedy is if that suffering does not soften their hearts and cause them to turn to God. Out of the desperation, like this woman that was sick with hemorrhaging for 12 years, like Jairus the desperate father seeking to protect his daughter from death, Reaching out to God. Reaching out to God. And Mark's message is, in doing that, God responds. Faith in God thus allows us to transcend our weakness and our fear. Jesus realised at once that healing power had gone out from him. So he turned around in the crowd and asked, who touched my robe? His disciples said to him, look at this crowd pressing around you. How can you ask who touched me? But he kept on looking around to see who had done it. Then the frightened woman, trembling at the realisation of what had happened to her, came and fell to her knees in front of him and told him what she had done. And he said to her daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace. Your suffering is over. The crowd pressing. And it's not hard to imagine. Remember this crowd of inquisitive ones. Quick to want to gather around Jesus. The moment he gets back into their territory. The moment he steps off that boat onto shore. And then they witness the begging of Jairus. And say, well, we're going to follow this guy. This is going to be a good show. This is going to be interesting. And the jostling and the crowding. And in the midst of this, Jesus turns around and says, who touched me? I really, really find it amazing the humanity of Jesus that's represented here. Humanity on two levels. The first thing is, 
who touched me? I don't know who did it. Now, we don't have time, obviously, to explore this further this morning, but the wonder of the incarnation, the wonder of God coming in the flesh, and that in some mysterious way, the Apostle Paul in Philippians 2 describes it as kenosis, self-emptying. The creator of the universe empties himself in humbling himself to live among us as a human being. And whatever else is involved in that self-emptying, it includes that all-knowing omniscience that we would associate with the creator of the heavens and the earth. Now, again, we don't have time to explore that except to notice that here. And there's another element of Jesus' humanity that, that, that I almost find amusing. He was so human that his disciples could say to him, Jesus, Jesus, you silly thing, get real. Probably in the last two minutes, a hundred hands have touched you and you talk about who's touched me. Can you imagine talking that way to God? But this was the Son of God. This was God who had humbled himself, emptied himself to address our plight, our suffering and our sin. Why did he draw attention to the woman? He knew. That was the last thing. Have you ever been in a crowd and then somebody, all of a sudden, the spotlight falls on you and you're horrified and you could wish that you could just disappear? Well, I mean, multiply that by 100 and you'd have the frame of mind of this woman right now. Jesus wasn't doing it to ridicule her or to make her more uncomfortable. I think he needed to know that the woman knew that, that, that it was her faith her trust in Jesus that healed her. It wasn't magic. It wasn't the right touch of a a magic robe or any such thing. And two, I think for her benefit, it was important that Jesus make the affirmation public, the affirmation of her healing, the declaration of her cleanness now. Daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace. Shabbat Shalom, grace and peace. I'm reminded of Matthew's account of Jesus' words in Matthew 11. Come to me, all of you who are weary and carry heavy burdens, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you. Let me teach you because I'm humble and gentle of heart. And you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy to bear, and the burden I give you is light. What an invitation. What an invitation. Son, daughter, trust in me, and you will find Shabbat, Shalom, grace and peace. While he was still speaking to her. Remember Jairus? 
Remember dad? Everybody rejoicing except Jairus. Come on, man, we don't have time for this. My daughter, my only daughter, every precious second that passes, then the worst of all news, the worst of all possible news, while he was still speaking to a messengers arrived from the home of Jairus, the leader of the synagogue, and they told him, your daughter is dead. There's no use troubling the teacher now. But Jesus overheard them and said to Jairus, don't be afraid, just have faith. This news plunges Jairus into the depths of despair and what little hope there may have been for his daughter is now lost. Why trouble the master? It's too late now. But Jesus' response, not so. Not so. There is never a time to stop troubling the Lord. There is never a time to stop troubling the Lord. And this is the paradox of being a Christian, isn't it? A paradox of being a disciple of Christ. We live with the reality of 12-year-old sickness and children dying. And we cry out to God, And sometimes, sometimes the answer we get from God is not what we hope for. And sometimes the answer is no. But here is the nature, the character of faith that we trust that God knows best. God knows best. And out of that trust, that assurance, that confidence, that hope that we have, we can accept. We can accept. But we don't give up. Because it's never too late to stop troubling the one cares for us. Be not afraid, Jesus' response. Often he said to his disciples, be not afraid. Fear is the opposite of faith. That's interesting. I find that very interesting. I'd be inclined, you know, if somebody asks me, what's the opposite of faith, opposite of believing, opposite of trust? Well, unbelief. No. No. The opposite of faith The opposite of trusting in God is fear. Faith in ourselves or our circumstances may sustain us for a while, but when hardship comes, and it will, it will, so does the reality of our finitude and our weakness. Without God, there is much to fear. Without God, there is much to fear. If you trust Jesus, however, you never need to be afraid. It's not a promise you'll never suffer. (laughs) That's not a promise that you'll never endure hardship. 
but that you have the understanding and the hope to make sense of that hardship and that suffering. And as a result of that hope, we need not fear because we know the one we trust is ultimately in control. Jesus stopped the crowd and wouldn't let anyone go with him except Peter, James and John, the brother of James. So Jesus, at this point, the inquisitive crowd, you stay here. I I suspect protecting the privacy, if you will, of Jairus and his family. This is not this is not a sideshow for your benefit. You stay here. We will go with Jairus to the rest of his family. I'm going to take Peter, James and John with me, that inner circle of his disciples, privileged in so many ways to witness the wonderful works of Christ. When they came to the home of the synagogue leader, Jesus saw much commotion and weeping and wailing. He went inside and asked, why all this commotion and weeping? The child isn't dead. She's only asleep. And the crowd laughed at him. Now, the crowd, the mob here, is not the mob that had been following him. This is the mob that had assembled at Jairus' daughter's, what was now, a wake, a funeral. The scene reflects the Jewish custom of engaging professional mourners. Rabbis at the time recommended a minimum of two flute players and one female wailer for a poor family's funeral. They didn't offer to pay for it, mind you. They just set the standard. If you want to be a respected citizen, if you don't want your neighbours to frown upon you or look down upon you, then at a bare minimum, you'll provide this to show that you really cared about the loved one. Two flute players and one whaler. It's probably safe to assume that for a family like Jairus' family who enjoyed some degree of status in the local community, there was probably a much larger group engaged. Here they were professionals. They were there because they were paid. And they knew their job. They recognised, they knew if somebody's dead, somebody's dead. So when Jesus comes along and declares, she's not dead, she's just sleeping. You, you crazy person. We're the professionals, we know. The crowd laughed. She's only asleep. Wow, I'd like to expand on this. Can I just say in passing though, blessed are those who die in the Lord. Blessed are those who die in the Lord. Because we can declare they're only asleep. This isn't the end. The Lord is going to call them forth, all of us, at his return. He made them all leave. And he took the girl's father and the mother and his three disciples into the room where the girl was lying. Holding her hand, he said to her, Talitha kum, which means little girl, get up. And the girl, who was 12 years old, immediately stood up and walked around. 
They were overwhelmed and totally amazed and Jesus gave them strict orders not to tell anyone what had happened and then he told them to give her something to eat. Engaging with a woman who was unclean and now touching a corpse. Jesus once again drives home the point that the telos, the end, the goal, the purpose of the law is love. The greatest commands, you'll remember. We think of the healing of the man with the shriveled hand that Mark recorded only days earlier. Healing on the Sabbath. The legalists that only saw laws and rules were quite distressed about that. Jesus, who do you think you are? Healing on the Sabbath. Healing, let's look it up, let's say, yes, healing equals work, according to the oral traditions of the fathers. But we all know Jesus' response, don't we? You guys are crazy. You guys, you guys have so, you've taken the law and turned it into death. You tell me, Jesus said, is it, is it, is it better to, to heal on the Sabbath? Isn't it, isn't, isn't of all times of the week most appropriate to heal on the Sabbath? The Sabbath that God gave to his people as a means of pointing them, reminding them of the hope of deliverance just like God delivered his people from Egyptian bondage. The reminder of what we had and hoped, lost, but hoped to regain in the Garden of Eden. Way back when God created in six days and on the seventh day rested. Isn't it most appropriate to be healing and saving on the Sabbath of all days of the week. But in their mind they couldn't see beyond the rules. Rules that had no meaning other than some arbitrary sense of satisfaction, self-righteousness, legalism. If we keep the rules, keeping the rules is what counts. Understand what the rules point to. Talitha Coombe, it's a very, it's Aramaic, which was what the, the common language in Judea at the time. It's a, ten, it's a tender phrase. Literally, arise, lamb, little lamb, precious one. No grand show here, no seeking celebrity or kudos, just getting on with the Father's business of bringing love and compassion into an otherwise mundane life. Did you notice it? And the Lord told them to give her something to eat. <laughs> it's almost a disappointment, it's almost an anticlimax, isn't it? I mean, Jesus has just raised this woman, this girl, sorry, from the dead. And her parents are there just absolutely amazed. And then Jesus says, give us something to eat. It's almost as if, let's just, let's just move back into the regular rhythm of mundane life, ordinary, everyday life. Life with Jesus. You trust in me 
has made you well, go in peace. Do you want peace in life? Do you want rest and shalom, grace? Then you'll only find it through trusting in Jesus Christ. Don't be afraid. Life might get terribly hard. Life might be awfully painful and disappointing and disgusting at times, infuriating at times. But if you trust Jesus Christ, it never need be fearful because of the promise. Arise, beloved. The promise that every child of God, everyone in Christ, those who have died in the Lord and those who will be alive at his return, arise, beloved. Amen.